John Matalavich here with the Human Advancement Podcast, powered by Ruthless Performance, as always. I'm here today with an Appalachian Trail through hiker, Kent Maiman. I met Kent um, in Hamburg, Pennsylvania, um, kind of just when I was out, just uh, actually not even on the Appalachian Trail, but just while I was out uh, grocery shopping, and we ended up talking, and, and uh, it was cool kind of getting to watch Kent's journey on on Instagram as he completed the last half almost of of the Appalachian Trail. Um, so Kent, like I, I said earlier before I started recording, I'm really interested in just kind of following this journey through from beginning to end. So what I, I'd like to hear um, just right off the bat is, you know, what were you doing before you decided to hike the Appalachian Trail? What was what led up to even being on the trail itself? Um, yeah, I had been uh, working at a vet clinic for about four years prior to going out on the trail. Um, and at the time, I was enjoying what I was doing, but I also kind of wanted more. Uh, I didn't want to be stuck in a, a career for, um, you know, 30 plus years, not feeling like I'm doing much with my life. And uh, that's kind of where I was getting to that point. Um, and so... I was just kind of thinking of ideas of, of how I can kind of change things up and, and do something that would be, um, you know, a little bit of a risk, but also just an adventure and, and um, just like, you know, really, really just kind of put myself out there and, and just have some experiences that I, I don't think a lot of people are able to get. Um, and so I was kind of researching, um, different types of trails and, and, and even just like different types of bike bike routes or, or just really anything to get out there. Um, and I happened upon the AT. Uh, part of the attraction of it was um, just the fact that I had really never been out to the East Coast to begin with. So part of it was just exploring new territory. Um, I always loved hiking, but most of my hiking was based out of Colorado. Um, and so uh, for me, it was like I was I wanted to find a, a new new place to to sort of explore and, and just check out. And um, and so I, I researched the AT. It sounded like a really good uh, beginning trail uh, for a lot of people. Uh, it's logistically it's a lot easier to plan your resupplies and and, just, you know, your water sources and, and all that. It's a lot easier than, say, the PCT or the CDT. Uh, and so. I started looking into it more and more and it just, it seemed like a really cool, cool thing to, to take part in. And so I, I made that commitment about, I don't know, maybe six months before I actually left. So I didn't have a whole lot of time to plan, but it was something I was really committed to. And, and I uh, just decided that this is going to be my, my life for the next six months. And so um, I put a lot of planning into it as much as I could in that time period and then um, took off in March. That's, that's awesome. So one of the things I, I like about that is just kind of uh, the fact, so a lot of people kind of have the same aspirational story where they say, you know, I'm, I'm kind of stuck in this position or whatever the case might be. But then, you know, for one reason or another, kind of fear gets the best of them. And then, you know, they ultimately end up not not following through. And the, 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 the difference in, in your situation is that you actually followed through with it. Um, have, are you, have you heard of uh, the fear setting exercise? It's uh, it's it's remarkable. So the fear this I, I initially heard about this from uh, an author uh, Tim Ferriss and basically what you do in, in the fear setting exercises with something like hiking the Appalachian Trail or anything you know you 
a lot of people kind of get caught up in worst case scenarios, but what the fear setting exercise does is it all you do is you think about what really are the worst case scenarios. And when you really play out the worst case scenarios in your head or you write them out or whatever the case might be, it ends up never really being as bad as you think it could potentially be. Mm-hmm. Um, what, you know, in, in your six months of planning leading up to it, what were, what were the things you were focused on the most in terms of, you know, big impediments to, um, to getting started? Were there any, t- were there any times throughout that six month period where you thought, you know, this isn't going to happen or, or what, what was that whole process like? I wouldn't say I never had those thoughts. I, I, I never thought it wasn't going to happen. I was always committed to it. Um, the big thing was just figuring out the gear that I was going to be taking. Um, and like I said, doing research on, uh, I talked to a couple of people that I'd done the trail previously, or at least parts of the trail. And so I was able to get their feedback on, on what they recommend and, and uh, just like things to do in towns and, and just kind of the whole experience from their perspective. Um, and so just talking to them helped a lot uh, and sort of easing my mind and, and realizing that really when you go out there, it's, it's just taking it day by day. I mean, you know, you might think to yourself, well, it's going to be six months of living in the woods. And, and that sounds like a, a, you know, pretty big deal to a lot of people, but when it comes down to it, you're, you're just out there every single day, um, just walking. I mean, that's really all it comes down to. And, uh, you just take it day by day and, and, uh, you know, step by step and you'll eventually make it there. I mean, it, it was kind of amazing because at the very beginning, I wasn't moving very fast. I mean, you start out doing maybe, you know, six to 10 miles a day. And, uh, when you think about it, it's like, that's going to take, you know, forever to get to the end, but you, you sort of get in this groove eventually and, and just keep walking. And, um, you know, like I said, day by day, you eventually make it there. So, uh, yeah, it, it's just, it was just kind of breaking it down, um, and not thinking about it as, as a whole, uh, the big picture, just, just taking it, uh, slowly as I went. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. I, I, uh, I just recently announced that, uh, I'm, I'm undergoing a new project. I'm going to try to break a paddleboard and world record, but it seems, yeah, I was kind of saying the same thing to some of the people about this, where it's not it's not necessarily just one uh, cohesive problem. It's just a series of really small mundane problems that you just have yep. to solve one after another. And when you look at it like that, it's not that bad. And like how, how you just said about, you know, the trail, all you're doing is you're just walking for six months. Like anyone, anyone could walk for a day. Anyone could go on a hike for a day. So can you go on a hike for a second day? Can you do it for a third day? It's all you know, if you take it in stride, it's, it seems so much more, so much more feasible than, than just thinking about the entirety of something like that. Yeah. Um, And some of the best advice I got was never quit on a bad day. I mean, you're going to have bad days out there. Um, you know, there was plenty of those to go around, um, whether it was raining all day or just freezing cold, snowing, uh, just a, a rough day with elevation gain. And, um, you have those, but, it, the whole thing is just getting through those and it's going to be right around the other side. So not, not to, uh, not to almost start this off on a bad note, but so what, what is a bad day? What was, what was the worst day on the trail? Uh, there were a couple, um, there, the Smokies in particular were really tough. Um, just because it was just raining constantly. I mean, we went through three or four days of just a constant downpour and it was cold um, you're high up there in, in elevation. And so, you know, a lot of times the trail becomes this river that you're just walking up. Um, you're just basically walking upstream. 
and uh, so you're just soaking wet and then you get to camp and um, a lot of times like you don't have enough time to, to really even make a fire or it's hard to make a fire if it's all wet and so things don't dry out so then next day you wake up and and then your your socks are still frozen like um, your, your shoes are like the shoelaces are literally frozen uh, and you got to put them on and just keep walking and that was probably the the Smokies were probably where I built the most character, I would say. And, and after getting through that that section, I realized that if I can get through this, I can get through whatever else the trail has to throw at me. I think uh, that's, you know, on one hand, you would think that in the north, it's going to be worse as the weather starts cooling off. But at the same time, as you get further north, you're almost seeing the light at the end of the tunnel as well. So, so I can very easily see kind of not just the weather being the issue, but so much as the weather plus the fact that you're going to be doing this for another four months being the, being the issue. Yeah, exactly. You didn't really feel like you were making a lot of progress in the beginning. And so just thinking that that's, that's why like taking it day by day and just saying I'm doing you know, 10 miles today, and that's what I'm focused on. And then tomorrow, 15 miles or whatever it may be, like that. You just take it step by step, and you'll you'll get. So what uh, I, I'd like to talk about, you know, so there's a bunch of different directions I'd like to go in here, but one of the things I kind of like to jump into, just because, you know, if if anyone has really field tested gear, I would say that 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 would have been you over over the past six months. So, um, what? are some gear recommendations what what did you end up really liking that you used based off of other people's suggestions and, and so on in terms of gear i mean feel free to geek out on this as much as you'd like because there, i think a lot of people could really um could really utilize good gear recommendations yeah uh well one of the first things that i i really liked my pack um it was a pretty basic pack uh, it was the rei flash 55 one of the cheapest packs you can actually find, um, which, which is what drew me to it originally. Mm -hmm. um, but it worked out really well. It, it was very sturdy, it was lightweight, it, it, it had everything that I needed uh, to, it to have. Um, the only issue with it was it is actually the wrong size for me, I think. It was, it was, I got a large, and I probably would have done better off with a medium. So fitting it to my body was a little bit tricky sometimes. Um, but uh, the pack itself was actually really, really nice. Um, I also, uh, really like my stove setup. I just had an MSR. Um, it was, it was actually a, a knockoff MSR I got on Amazon for about 15 bucks and, uh, it, it worked out perfectly lasted me the whole trail and, and I'm going to use it now when I just do regular backpacking trips as well. Um, uh, what else? Uh, I, I had, um, the shoes that I had actually, so I realized that waterproof shoes are not the way to go. I started out with a pair of waterproof shoes. And the problem with those is they just hold in all the moisture. And whether you're, you know, walking through rivers or, or getting rained on, your feet are going to get wet eventually. And so once they get wet in the waterproof shoes, they don't dry out. So you're just basically getting trench foot at that point. Um, so I realized very quickly that waterproof shoes are not the way to go. So I got the same shoes I had, which were ASIC, uh, not ASIC, Ultras, uh, ultra lone peaks. I had those um, in non-waterproof um, after I, I realized that waterproof is not the way to go. And those worked out great for me. Um, the wide toe box was awesome. Uh, I didn't get really any blisters uh, at all the whole trail, which was most, I mean, not many people can say that. Um, I might've just gotten lucky with just, just, you know, having the perfect shoe for my, for my feet, but 
Um, it worked out great. Um, what about and then I realized, oh yeah, sorry, go ahead. No, I was just gonna ask, what about, so, you know, it could also be uh, some kind of combination between the socks and the shoes. What, what socks were you wearing? Do you have any preference for socks? Yeah, I was wearing, uh, when I first started out, I was wearing just these, these really basic like hiking socks, um, really weren't great. Uh, they, they worked out uh, for day hikes and things, but when you're walking in them every single day, they tore up pretty quickly. So I switched over to Darn Tufts uh, about a month and a half into the trail. Um, and they also started tearing up, but the good, the good thing about Darn Tufts is that uh, you can just uh, replace them at any outfitter for free. So I went through probably four or five pairs of them, but they were free to replace every single time. So it worked out really nicely with those. Um, so yeah. That, that's awesome. Yeah, the the I just inquisitive about the footwear situation because a lot of uh, a lot of the populations I work with at Ruthless Performance, you know, we we work with hunters and outdoorsmen all the time. So that that tends to be something that I focus on a lot. I I focus extensively on the idea of minimalist footwear when possible. I mean, you know, when you're getting into a into a situation like uh, you know hike, hiking the Appalachian Trail, it the my traditional footwear recommendations tend to go out the window because right. it's a it's a whole different game. But that is something I'm I'm perpetually interested in. And I cool. I, I, be, I believe when we had initially met, you had even um, you'd referenced the shoes and you said that they were like a zero drop shoe. So this was something that you were even thinking about at that time as well. Yeah. Um, so I I'm a big runner. Uh, so even before I came out on the trail, I was running a lot. And actually, I I prefer barefoot shoes. Um, I had a pair of Merrells that I still wear all the time, but they're, they're very, very basic. Um, and I think that actually helped a lot with just building up calluses on my feet before I even got out there. And that's part of why I didn't have any blisters, I think. Um, so I just happened to already really enjoy zero drop and, um, and just the minimalist footwear in the first place. And so the ultras were, were naturally like a great fit for me. Um, and I would, I would say 90% of hikers that I met had ultras. I mean, it was very, very common out there. Um, just the wide toe box also helped out a lot with reducing friction and um, just keeping your feet happy. And, and some people, you know, preferred having more support and that worked for them. Um, but I think the ultra lone peaks were, were probably the most popular. Yeah, that, that makes sense. I can see the, I can see the breakdown there being that, you know, people, it's not exactly the time to all of a sudden pick up a hobby as a barefoot runner when you're yeah. when you're on the Appalachian Trail. So I think that might be where some of the other people kind of uh, disagree with you. Um, I so just kind of going back to to some of these terms that we're talking about here, just for the audience. So when we're talking about uh, zero drop footwear, we're just kind of talking about as opposed to shoes having a big heel on them. There's just no there's no drop between the heel and the toe, so it's just a, a standard flat. Uh, standard flat shoe and then the other thing you had mentioned was the the wide toe box which just allows the feet kind of room to spread um through the toes uh laterally um which again just kind of f facilitates better uh foot positioning over uneven terrain mm -hmm. um is there any gear that you had initially packed uh that you know either you, you swore by or you thought you were going to need but then ultimately ended up ditching after a couple of weeks or anything like that. Yeah, there was a, a couple things. Um, first of all, I brought out bear spray, which uh, <laughs> I had never seen a bear in the wild before. Uh, even at, even being out in Colorado, I uh, just never ran into one. So I didn't know what would happen if I did see one. So just being the precautionary person I am, um, 
I, I brought out some bear spray and uh, ended up ditching that a couple weeks in. It, I just realized it wasn't worth the, the wait and, and just worrying about having it. Um, and on the, on the same lines, uh, I had a bear uh, bag, the Ursac um, bag, um, that I realized that I don't need this. It was about $100 on Amazon and, and um, some people love it and some people use it the whole time and, and I'm happy for them. But for me, it was, it was more just a, a cost versus, versus benefit um, scenario. And, uh, I ended up selling that back or returning it to Amazon and just got myself a, a $20 food bag from, uh, one of the outfitters I ran into. So, um, realized I didn't, I didn't need the whole like bear proof bag and stuff. I just hung my food and it was fine. Um, did you, did you have a lot of wildlife interaction on, on the trail? Yeah, quite a bit. Um, a lot of, a lot of snakes. Uh, I only saw two rattlesnakes, but a lot of just black snakes and garter snakes and um, just all sorts of stuff. Uh, um, let's see, I saw a bunch of deer. Uh, I saw I saw a bunch of bears. Uh, I didn't see any bears until I got to New Jersey, but then there's actually a stretch of about five days where I saw a bear every single day. Um, and then one of those days happened to be at night when we saw the bear and it came into our camp and was kind of harassing us a little bit. Uh, and luckily we had hung our food that night and it was a really good hang. And so, it realized it couldn't get the food and eventually wandered off, but that was a little bit scary. Uh, just looking out of the tent and seeing the eyes looking back at us and uh, hearing the noise and the, the grunts and the sniffing and all that. Um, but but I mean, for the most part, the bears will leave you alone if, if they see you uh, and they know that you don't have anything for them, they're gonna leave you alone. So it wasn't, wasn't that scary, but... Um, yeah, so I mean, just a lot of a lot of stuff that you'd kind of expect to see in the woods uh, throughout the, the the experience. Um, yeah. Um, well, how how did you get the bear out of camp that night? Just loud noises. <laughs> uh, yeah. So we it was uh, me and just one other person, and we were just making a bunch of noise, uh, yelling at it, actually throwing rocks at it. Um, one of the things that we we got in the habit of doing was just getting our what we call our bear rock and just leaving rocks next to our tent so in case we find a bear or a bear comes into our, our camp that night we have stuff to like kind of defend ourselves and, and throw at it um so we were throwing rocks at it and it wasn't really being affected by it too much it would kind of like run away but then come right back two minutes later and uh so eventually uh, it was kind of funny. Um, the person I was with, they actually ended up Googling what to do when a bear is in your camp because it just wasn't leaving us alone. And uh, we found out that the best thing to do, as long as your food is out of reach, is just to kind of let it figure out it can't get the food and then it'll eventually leave you alone. And so once we realized it wasn't running away, uh, we just kind of went back into our tents um, and let it, it kind of came a little bit closer, sniffed around a little bit and eventually just ran off. Um, so it was a little bit nerve wracking though when it wasn't actually being scared away because the other bears that I had seen at that point, they all ran off immediately when they saw you. So the bringing up the tent kind of brings me back to the talk about gear that we kind of got off of, but what tent were you using? Were you using a sleeping pad or a sleeping, yeah. pad, sleeping bag too? Yeah, so I was using a big Agnes. Um, it was a HV Fly Creek um, and uh, it was a one and a half person tent. 
Uh, I also had a sleeping pad. So I, the sleeping pad was a bit of an issue for me because I started out with an emo tensor and uh, it just had all sorts of problems. A good before I had any issues with it, but then it was just like constantly I was, I was having to patch it and just try to, it just kept getting more and more leaks. And so eventually I was like, this isn't gonna work. So um, while I was trying to figure out the warranty situation and getting a new one sent out, I realized it would take two weeks to get a new one sent out. So I just ended up buying a brand new pad. And I went with a big Agnes um, pad as well. Um, and then I actually ended up having a big Agnes uh, bag too, a sleeping bag, um, a 25 degree bag. And so I was basically just rocking the big Agnes gear at the end there, but, um, and it all worked out pretty well. The, the bag was uh, really, really, I think it was, uh, it was good for when it was cold out, but a little bit too warm when it was it was warmer out. So uh, towards the end, I, I sometimes didn't even use the bag. I was just sleeping in my liner, um, and that was plenty warm enough. Uh, but I would kind of rotate between using the bag and just using the liner as well. I actually, I think I, I had reached out to you while you might have even still been on the trail at that point, um, asking about your your tent setup. Um, because I wanted to get a new tent. So I, I actually ended up going with the big Agnes line too for um, for some of my, um, the hunting that I've been doing. I've, I've gone with, it's a, the tent itself isn't big, but it has a pretty big vestibule, the mm -hmm. uh, the Blacktail Hotel 2. Um, so the tent is, it's a two person tent, but then in addition to that, there's an entire, another enclosure, like a front vestibule that, where I could put my bow or gun or whatever the case might be, or even bike if I'm, bike packing yeah and actually uh just going back to gear recommendations and, and kind of things that I, I wish i did differently um the tent was good but i wish i had a freestanding tent um because a lot of the campsites towards the north uh, part of the trail had tent pads but they didn't really have any tent sites um so a lot of times i was kind of either just cowboy camping on the pad or uh had to find someplace else or sleep in the shelter something different um, but if I had a freestanding tent, I could have just stayed on the pad. So without the freestanding tent, is that using your trekking poles? Uh, yeah, yeah. Well, so uh, it's it's a sem it's called a semi freestanding. So basically, you just to 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 set up the entire tent, you really want to have stakes on the on the uh, tail end of it where your feet go. Um, otherwise, it won't spread out properly. Uh, and so. Um, the the, uh, the the head part though you can you actually don't need anything it, the poles that that come with it will keep it kind of expanded um, but you had to have the stakes on the on the tail end and, and because of that you couldn't really use a tent pad because unless you just kind of uh, you know rigged it where you could tie it down and 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 do all that but I just didn't feel like doing all that so a lot of times I just was lazy and and just decided to sleep on the on the tent pad just on my sleeping pad. Well, I, I got to say, I, I I like the Big Agnes products. I also, I got their, uh, I I want to say it's the Q, uh, the Core SLX. Core? I, I, yeah. I could be, it's it's one of, it's a very winter specific one. Um, I, 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 so I, that might, that might be wrong. But the reason I got the one I did isn't necessarily for winter camping but it's just because of the durability of the material. It's a lot thicker, but the durability of the material, because I camp with my dog sometimes, um, just in terms of trying to prevent uh, punctures or anything like that, is something yep. that, that I was kind of concerned about. I, I, so I think it's it's kind of interesting how on one hand, you know, you're talking about, you have a, uh, 
you have a, a cheap 55 liter pack and then um you know you have a 15 dollar stove and then you sing their praises but then you have this nemo sleeping pad which <laughs> i couldn't imagine being less than 200 bucks yeah and that's the thing that becomes the issue because i i wouldn't i i I only recently started even considering the idea of getting anything from Nemo just because of the price point, but that actually kind of goes against um, my, my chances of getting something from them in the future is that, that kind of that story. Yeah. And actually uh, I wasn't the only one with the Nemo sensor. And so the people that I was talking to that also had it had the same exact issues. They were having the, the leaking issues and, and I don't want to just bash Nemo. Like they have a lot of great products, but just the, the pad itself didn't seem to work for a lot of people. Yeah, I, I was interested. They uh, they they just formed a line with uh, First Light, which is a hunting company, a hunting apparel company that I like, and they have they have some new tents out. Even they have a single man tent, and then they also have a, a dome tent. And I was I was looking at both of those, but um, they were I actually would have ordered them over the the Blacktail Hotel, were it not for the fact that they were um, they were sold out at the time, mm-hmm. and I kind of needed it with some urgency. I don't recommend that for backpacking though. That that. <laughs> It, especially with that 55 liter pack that would, yeah. not, would not work. I, I have a similar experience with, I have a Cabela's brand uh, pack that I got, you know, probably, probably more than 10 years ago at this point. Actually, I, I got it for a trip into the Sierras in 2007. And I've just, I've been waiting for it to not, not work that just to get a new, new uh, bag, a new pack. But that thing is, that thing is held up remarkably well. My only issue with it is is its capacity. Its capacity. It's like a. I think it might. It might even be like an eighty liter pack. I mean, the thing. It's wow. it's massive. It's absolutely massive. But you know, so far that that's held up. So I think there's there's a lot to be said for. You know, I think people see some of these higher end products and they think that they're going to do the Appalachian Trail and they're getting into these these big budget expenses. And I mean, over the course of the whole thing, that might be the case. But you don't necessarily need to spend thousands of dollars to make these things happen either. Yeah, there's there's ways to go about it to get either used gear or lightly used gear that will last you just as long, um, and it's way cheaper for that route. Do you have any recommendations for sites for used gear or anything like that? Um, honestly, I didn't do. I didn't actually get a lot of used gear. A lot of the stuff that I bought was brand new from REI. I had a, a couple gift cards that people gave me, and so I I just basically spent all my money at REI and and just went with their recommendations. I don't, I don't blame you one bit. What? So um, kind of moving on back in, into my realm and the company's realm, which is something more along the lines of human performance with um, nutrition. So what I, now I, I know this is we're, we're not talking about we're not talking about people training for an hour and a half a day and trying to eat salads. So and I know just from my personal experience, what it was like when I was biking across the country, what the caloric requirements are so could you just talk about uh what you were eating when you're on the trail yeah so when i first started out um i am not a big breakfast person so i really wasn't even eating breakfast at the very beginning and it sounds crazy because people say you know you need the breakfast for the fuel and um uh so but i started out just not eating breakfast that was just my normal routine anyway um and so for lunch i'd usually have uh, just a, a bunch of snacks, a, a, a bunch of protein bars. Um, you know, I ended up packing out a, uh, a lot of peanut butter. Uh, that was pretty, 
pretty important for my diet, I think, just the, the calories and, and the protein and, and all that. Um, but I'm also vegetarian. And so uh, working in, you know, um, the, whole, the whole idea for me was just trying to get enough protein and, and fat to sort of supplement my calories. Um, and so usually I just have a bunch of snacks during the day, throughout the day. Uh, whether it's bars, pro, uh, pro, uh, peanut butter, um, you know, tortillas, just a bunch of stuff. And then for dinner, I'd usually pig out. I'd just have, you know, either a, a dehydrated meal, sometimes two. Um, we had these things called ramen bombs where you mix ramen with a bunch of instant mashed potatoes. And uh, <laughs> it's, I mean, it's like 4,000 calories and, and, you know, this little, little package. And so it, that worked out really well. Um, and uh, yeah, a lot of, lot of mac and cheese. Um, a lot of, lot of little pasta dishes and, and nor sides and things like that, just to sort of supplement. And then I'd always have some sort of dessert as well. Um, whether it be like a cosmic brownie or just like some cookies that I packed out or, or something like that. I just, you just try to eat as much or candy bars, things like that. You just try to eat as much as you possibly can. And, um, after the first month or so, I, I realized I should be probably eating breakfast. And so I started eating, um, uh, like protein bars or oatmeal for breakfast as well, and just kind of mix that into my diet. But um, you know, it was—I wouldn't say my diet was good. Uh, it was just the whole it's, idea it's good was for just the requirements. I mean, it's good for it's good for the circumstances. One hundred percent. Yeah, it was just like eating as much as you possibly can. And I sort of learned as well what foods pack out that are a little bit lighter, but better for you know calorie intake. Um, and so I, I sort of fine tuned that towards the end as well um had more dehydrated meals which were really light but also really good calories and and things like that um but it was just you know tons of sugar tons of carbs um and then as much fat as i could get as well um one of the things i've i've done I, I discovered this this year actually um going out to to utah up to the uintas i think it was the first time i tried this but i got um from trader joe's they have um, almost, they almost look like ketchup packets, but rather than having um, ketchup, they, they're filled with coconut oil. So um, mm. I, I utilize the hell out of those with, uh, in the morning, I'll put it in my coffee or in the evening, I'll put it in like hot chocolate and it's, it's an extra 200 calories just so you can just Absolutely. Kind of yeah, actually I was, I was packing out, uh, I got a little bit lazier with this towards the end, but I was packing out a little like two ounce jar of um, uh, olive oil and I just throw that in every single meal. Um, whether it's, you know, breakfast, lunch, or dinner, I just would always throw olive oil in there and just extra, you know, 200 calories, like you said. Yeah, that, that's, that's pretty smart. I, uh, ramen bombs are an interesting, are an interesting <laughs> creation, I gotta say. So as far as, I, I really want to stick with this, with the whole notion of nutrition here, um, just because I, I find this fascinating, but just kind of almost thinking about this as we kind of talk. So it, it makes a lot of sense that you weren't having breakfast initially because one of the problems with the breakfast is the moment your body switches into uh, utilizing sugar as a substrate for the day, um, you're almost reliant on that for the rest of the day. So it's kind of where all the nonsense came out about, you know, jumpstarting your metabolism in the morning by eating cereal. All it is, it's because it's just, it's spiking your, your, your blood sugar and then immediately dropping it. So you just get hunger pangs immediately afterwards. Um, so without eating the breakfast, you're just utilizing um, stored fat as fuel uh, for a longer portion of the morning. Um, and then as you go all along the trail, I'm sure you're losing weight as well. 
um, that is going to make it harder for you to just kind of utilize some of that stored uh, fat as fuel. So it, it makes sense that that's the natural progression. One of the ways I've kind of, I've personally found um, the kind of the workaround where you're getting, you are getting AM calories um, without it causing you to just crave food throughout the day is a high fat breakfast where I'm just eating the, having coconut oil in my coffee and then a, a shit ton of either mixed nuts or almonds or something like that. Um, so that that's something that that's definitely workable for me. But yeah, I think you utilizing fat as a fuel is is a is a skill unto itself. And again, that's one of those things where either kind of got to have that figured out well ahead, well in advance of being on the trail, or you not want to not want to try to mess around with with changing your nutrition when you're when you're doing a, a momentous task like that. Yeah, I had actually experimented with different diets beforehand. Um, just kind of seeing how my body reacted to it and, and just seeing how it feels and, and how I performed uh, with my runs and things like that. Uh, and so keto diet was one of the ones that I ended up trying and actually really enjoying. Uh, I felt like I, I stayed fuller throughout the day. Um, and I felt like I, mentally I was, I was clear. I just felt more, uh, I mean, there's less you know ups and downs throughout the day with my energy levels and things like that. Um, and so that's kind of like where the high fat came into play was I was trying to eat as much fat as I, I could in my meals, but it's just, it's hard when you're out there and, and the easiest things to pack out are just like candy bars and, yeah. and just like all this sugar that you can, uh, that you can make pretty easily. But, um, I was also doing intermittent fasting as well. And that's kind of what played into not eating breakfast and, and, my body sort of adapted to that uh, before I got out on the trail already. So I definitely were you noticed. doing keto on a vegetarian diet? Yeah, that's that's remarkable. I think yeah. I think that is from an ethical perspective and from a health perspective. If you can master that as 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 a, as a diet, I think that's where most people should be. I just think that that takes that takes a very special skill set to make that happen. What? So could you just give me a rundown of, of some of your of some of your vegetarian keto meals yeah i mean there's a lot of uh avocado so I, I just kind of like made a bunch of i just had a bunch of ingredients and i just kind of made meals out of them so most of my meals had at least one or two avocados in them um a lot of peanut butter um a lot of nuts just as snacks throughout the day uh, a lot of cashews almonds things like that um and then uh i had a lot of uh i also eat eggs so eggs were a big part of my meal as well like I, I would have at least three or four eggs a day um, just for that extra protein. Um, and it was just easy fuel. So I, I just kind of like mixed together all, all sorts of th things to sort of um, as, you know, easily as I could. And, and it was hard. And, and I, I, I stuck to it for about two months or so, like hardcore. And, and then I sort of started slacking a little bit. I had, you know, a candy bar here or there, or just like some, some chips and salsa or just something that wouldn't, wouldn't quite be the same, but um, but it was, it was definitely like a, a good learning experience for me and, uh, just learning that discipline as well. Um, I think helped me out on the trail, just, just being able to say, this is what I'm putting my mind to. And, and that's what I'm doing now. Uh, and, and that definitely helps. Are you familiar with, uh, green belly bars? Yeah, I've heard of them. Yeah. And, and you have no personal experience though? No, I haven't ever used them. Okay. What about, um, so you said you'd mentioned freeze dried. So what, what were your freeze dried meals of choice or what did you kind of find was 
fast or, or most in, inexpensive? Yeah, uh, a lot of them, so they were expensive. That was the, the downside. If I had planned it better, I would have just done a bunch of dehydrated meals beforehand and sent them out to me uh, throughout the trail. Um, but a lot of the meals I ended up, ended up sticking with were, uh, they were like the three bean chilies and um, I'm actually trying to remember the brand right now. I can't quite remember it, but it was a brand from Maine. Um, and I was, I was basically just eating those like nonstop uh, towards the end. It, they were my favorite meal to pack out. Um, so a lot of three bean chili, uh, some mac and cheese meals. Um, and then one of my favorite things to eat uh, that weren't freeze dried, but it was just preparing myself was just getting like a box of the Kraft mac and cheese and um, just preparing that on my own. And, and it was actually really easy and, and simple and lightweight as well. Um, so I'd usually get that and then, and then uh, throw some other stuff in there. But uh, it was a lot, like I said, a lot of pasta, a lot of, a lot of those kind of dishes as well. Um, so yeah. So was, you you I, could make the Kraft mac and cheese just on the MSR? Yeah. So actually um, it's not the most environmentally friendly uh, way to go about <laughs> it, but one of the easiest ways to do it was you just boil a bunch of water and pour the mac and cheese, the, the dried noodles in a Ziploc and then um, pour the, the boiling water into the Ziploc and just seal it and wait about 10 minutes and it'll cook in the Ziploc. As long as you have a freezer bag, it won't leak or anything either. And uh, that's how I got most of my, my meals. It, it saved a bunch of fuel. That was the, the plus side of it. Um, and you also don't have to clean your pot afterwards too, which was nice. Because uh, yeah, that got pretty old after a little while. So um, yeah, it was really, really easy to, to prepare things like that. That's how I made most of my meals towards the end. Uh, the north sides and and oatmeal and, and everything. I didn't use my pot. I just boiled the water and then poured it in another another bag. Um, so I'm just thinking of um, on one of my last hikes. One of the things I did. I I was fortunate in that I stayed at a hotel beforehand. It was a nice hotel, and they had um, at the breakfast bar they had uh, single serve Nutella packets. Uh, so I loaded up on those. Were there anything? Was there anything like that that you kind of just got your hands on and you just kind of relished while you're on the trail? Um, on the trail, uh, yeah, I actually had a bunch of those little Justin peanut butter packets. I, I really liked those because they were really easy to pack out. Um, the problem was they were a little bit expensive if you're buying them um, often. Um, so I just, I literally packed out like jars of things. So I had like a jar of peanut butter. I had a jar of Nutella. Um, and it's, it's heavy, but you eat it so quickly that eventually it just, it, it goes pretty quick. So um, I think that was my favorite thing on trail was just like the peanut butter, like the peanut butter and tortillas or, or Nutella and peanut butter and tortillas, um, just mixing all that together. And, and that was so good. But um, also uh, I got into honey buns. Uh, I had never had a honey bun before the trail, but um, they're just such an easy thing to pack out. Uh, you know, they're 500 plus calories each. And so it's just a really easy, um, you know, sugar rush. <laughs> and uh, so I got into those, uh, like I said, a lot of candy bars, a lot of M&Ms. Uh, I had those big family size M&M bags that I'd go through in a couple days, um, just as snacks. Um, a lot of chocolate. So, uh, you know, I, it was, like I said, a lot of sugar, uh, just a lot of stuff that I shouldn't be eating outside of the trail, but it was perfect for burning all the calories that I was burning. So uh, uh, what, 
so you make it so say one day you make it out of the trail you make it to uh you make it to like a, a gas station or a convenience store what what's your what's your go-to ice cream That's i'd it, always yeah. start with ice cream yeah i'd, I'd get a, a pint of ice cream and polish that thing off in in five minutes um uh, so every time I went to a town, like that was the first thing I did before I even did my resupply, before I even got shower in, like I went to the convenience store and I got, I got a pint of ice cream. Um, and then I figured out what I needed to do after that. I just had to get like my, my fix in and then I was good. Um, I also drank a lot of soda, which I hadn't really done before the trail. Same. But it's just, it's just such an easy, um, easy, you know, 200 calories or 300 calories or whatever it is. Um, and it just, it your body craves it towards the end. And so um, I drank a lot of soda. I'm, I'm trying to cut back now, now that I'm off the trail, but it's like, I, I kind of got a little addicted to it, I think, uh, just with how much I was drinking it. Um, but it was, yeah, like a soda and ice cream was like the first thing that I, I got in town. Yeah, I, they'd say, I, I was the same situation with uh, soda where I didn't have soda for the two years leading up to when I did the the bike trip. And then I started on the bike trip and I started thinking, you know, I would be dumb not to drink this. I mean, this is, I could get, I could get easily an extra 800, a thousand calories yep. for free at a restaurant yeah. um, just, yeah. by, just by consuming soda. And so, the, and actually then the last time I had one was the last day of um, the last day of, of my trip. Actually, what was interesting about it was the first time I had one. So I'm not sure if you experienced anything like this where, so uh, the first portion of the bike trip, I was on the Western Express, which actually rode along the Pacific Crest Trail um, for for portions. So it wasn't on this, it wasn't on the Pacific Crest, but you know it was kind of there were similar service stations. So at some of these stations, there would be um, not necessarily like at a ranger station, they would have just kind of food there for you to take if you were a through hiker, if you were a through cyclist. And so that was actually where, that was where I christened my 43 day soda binge was with a, was with a, uh, a Coca-Cola at a, this ranger station where I was actually hanging out with some, with some people that were doing the Pacific Crest Trail. Sure. Yeah. I mean, there was tons of trail magic along the trail and, uh, you know, almost always there was some sort of soda or just like a, you know, fizzy drink of some sort because people loved it out there and so it was it was so refreshing just to get like a nice cold coke on a hot day when you're when you're hiking 15 miles you know um so th those were definitely the best sort of trail magic that i, I experienced i i i like that the name that the word trail magic and that makes me think about just the, the whole culture of of the appalachian trail so what i'm sure there are things that you don't really recognize are going to be um a subset of your experience until you're on the trail so like uh, like the, the, the whole the whole notion of trail magic or even um, the trail name which I'd like to get into but, but prior to that what what are th other things that you experienced on the trail that weren't really told to you and it just kind of fell into being part of the culture um that's a good question uh because I had already talked to a bunch of people that had done the trail so I think I went into it with a, a pretty good idea of what to expect um the the whole idea of uh i mean we kind of had these things that we called chores um every every day you had to you know set up your tent uh, make your breakfast in the morning uh set up your sleeping pad like hang your hang your food bag and um so i i, I knew that that was a thing going into it but i don't think i realized like 
how how tiring that can get sometimes. I mean, I, I really like kind of expected to, I had all day to hike. So I might, I mean, I'll have all day to sort of set up my stuff and it'll, you know, it's not a big deal, but by the time you're done hiking, like you don't really feel like doing anything. And so one of the things that actually I, I slacked off on was uh, journaling. I, I brought out this, this nice like journal that I was like gonna, you know, fill in every single day and, and really, and recap my experience and all that. And um, I realized very quickly that by the end of the day, I did not want to write in my journal. I just like wanted to go to bed. And yeah. um, so that was a little bit of a bummer. I didn't do a lot of journaling, but I, I kind of kept notes uh, throughout the experience. But, um, and then uh, the trail magic thing, uh, that was definitely something I didn't expect. Uh, I, I had heard about it, but I didn't realize how much or how little I'd actually find. And there was a lot more than I expected. And um, so there, it, it could have been something as simple as just leaving a cooler in, in the trail with some Coke in it, or um, some people let you come to their house and just tent in, in their backyard, or, or um, if they had a spare you know, bedroom, they might let you sleep in the bedroom. Like It was just really, really cool stuff that people went out of their way to, to help you uh, be more comfortable along, along the trail. And um, so that the whole hiker culture was definitely something that I, I I've heard about, but didn't really know what to expect out of it. And it just blew me away how, how friendly these people were. And, and, um, and, and not just the people in towns, but also the hikers to each other. I mean, I met so many amazing people and I'm sure I'm just gonna, you know, talk to the rest of my life and, and consider friends. And, 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 and it was just um, an amazing experience just with the people involved. Yeah, I, I think that that's something I had experienced kind of along the same lines where I, I didn't even recognize it, but there's almost there's almost like this web of connectivity along the trail. So for me, it was, it was the Western Express and the, the Transam bike route, but in, in passing other cyclists, there would be talk about, you know, stops to go to up in the next town or you know who you might see coming by or what they might have and just things like that. So there's there's actually, in addition to this web of people, there's also this web of information that's being transmitted up and down the trail faster yeah. than the people are, which I, I thought that was remarkable. I mean, that, that was not something I was anticipating. That was really cool, yeah. I mean, you, you hear about stuff through word of mouth more than reading about it, more than you know even experiencing yourself. I mean, you, you just hear about these things uh, from, and, and for us, it was a little different because we didn't really see a lot of southbounders um, because of the whole COVID thing. A lot of them didn't start till much later in the season. Uh, and so we didn't really see a lot of southbounders till we got pretty far up north. Um, and so it was a little bit harder to, to sort of relay that information of what's ahead. But you see hikers that, you know, you pass and then they pass you and, and just keep progs the whole way. And um, so that was, yeah, we definitely relayed a lot of information that way, which is really cool. Before we get too far off of it, uh, the journaling thing is something that that struck me as well. I did not journal at all. I wish I had. Even I think I think if there's any takeaway for anyone doing anything like this, I think it's something that people need to do. But like you said, where it could be where it could be time consuming. I even just having like a, a pocket journal or something where even if I just put down bullet points throughout the day of just things, just to kind of. Uh, rekindle some memories I think that would have mm -hmm. gone so far uh, yeah absolutely I, I ended up what I did was I just had my guidebook and I just made notes it already had all the towns we stop in and, and all the, the check mark the check, checkpoints and stuff 
And so I just made notes as I went along, um, just like little things here and there, like stop for lunch or, or talk to this person, met this person, whatever it might be, just to sort of like have that memory. Um, and it was a little bit easier uh, to do that than it was to actually write in the journal. And you had you had just mentioned uh, COVID too. So it, did that have, so you started on the trail, what was your start date and what was your end date? And then what was the impact of COVID on, on your journey? Yeah, so I started March 1st and I ended August 30th. So it was just under six months. Um, when I first started, obviously COVID wasn't really a thing. We had heard about it out in China, like it wasn't really much of a, a thing here. So I didn't think much of it. And then about three weeks into the trail is when it really started getting intense. Uh, so it was like late March. Um, and I remember being in the shelter right before the Smokies. And that was the point where people were really like encouraging you to get off trail. I mean, it was uh, people were saying that, you know, if you, if you catch COVID, you're going to spread it to these small towns and they're not going to have the healthcare infrastructure to, to treat themselves and you're going to kill all these people. And it was just a lot of scare tactics, I think. Um, but at the same time, I was taking that into account and really, really thinking to myself, um, is this worth continuing? I mean, it, you know, ethically, do I feel right uh, by continuing um, the trail? And uh, I ended up calling my mom at one point and just really talking it over with her and seeing what she thought of it. And um, she was very supportive. She said, you know, whatever you decide, I'm going to support you either way. Um, you know, think about it and, and really make sure it's the right choice for you. And thankfully, I was with a lot of people that um, were kind of uh, gung-ho about doing the whole thing. They, they didn't really think about getting off trail at all. Um, and the, the cool thing about the, the COVID crisis, if there could be a cool thing, was for us, it brought us all together. It, it all made us very, uh, very uh, closely. It, it just brought us, you know, as like a close-knit family almost. And and uh, we, we we came together and we realized like we're only going to make it if we all help each other out along the way. Um, and so it, it grew our bond to be much tighter. Um, and at that point, the people that I was hiking with, it was we were it was like us against the world almost, and we were, we just didn't want to get off and and we wanted to make it all the way. And, and we're going to do that together. And that was really cool. Um, as far as the how COVID affected the trail. Um, it didn't affect it as much as I think people thought it would. Uh, we were still able to resupply. We were still able to get hitches into town, which I was most concerned with is getting into town. Um, there were a couple towns where hostels were either closed for the season or just closed for a couple weeks while things were getting crazy. Um, I, I'd say Hot Springs was probably one of the hardest towns uh, for us because it was, it was right after the Smokies. Things were still very fresh. Um, most of the places to stay in town were closed down or you had to call ahead and, and kind of like sneak into it. Uh, almost like say you had a reservation and, and they let you in, but um, they weren't open to the public, um, just really the hikers. Um, and so it was just hard finding places to stay sometimes. But I mean, for the most part, I, I really don't think it affected us all that much. I mean, it, it actually, I think, helped the hikers that stayed on because a lot of hikers went home um, because of it. And so, we never had to had to fight for shelter spots. Um, we uh, getting you know reserving a spot in the hostel was never an issue because there just wasn't enough people to fill the spots anyway. So there was always spots waiting for us. Um, so I think for the most part, it actually helped a lot of hikers out, and I, I really enjoyed it being out there with a less uh, with less people. Um, I, I think that 
uh, it would have been a much different experience on a normal year. And um, I, I think I much preferred the, the, the COVID year, I guess, um, as weird as that might sound. Good for you. Yeah, I, that, that's remarkable. I, I, I could see that being a positive for, for all those reasons. I just worried that, you know, just having such a different experience in so many different towns that there might be some towns where things were fine and then others where you just were just, it, it, it's, not, it's not a scenario where you could just kind of automate everything and just use the same procedures from one town to the next because right. people, especially that early on, people, people were all over the place in terms of it. Yeah, and we actually, there was a, uh, a point where um, we were kind of thinking to ourselves, like, what's the best way to plan this trail and, and, and um, make it so we can make it to the end? And uh, one of the things that, one of the, 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 one of the guys that I was hiking with, he, he came up with, uh, I think it was a list of 13 different post offices that were within a mile of the trail that we could walk to. And so worst case scenario, if we couldn't get a resupply, couldn't get into towns, we at least could send uh, packages to these these post offices and, and they'd be easy to get to easy to access um, and so we could at least have a constant supply of food coming to us because um, we figured even if the hostels were closed the post office wasn't going to close down so we could always at least have that as a backup plan um, so it was just a lot of like extra planning that I think people on a normal year wouldn't wouldn't have to do but um, like I said it just drew us uh, closer as a, as a group and I, I think it it made us stronger as well. One of the things I, I would like to talk about, um, just kind of along the lines of along the lines of the culture of the whole thing is is the trail name. Is that is that something that we could talk about? Like how how what is what's the history of the trail name as a concept, if you're familiar with that, and what is your trail name and, and how did you get that? Yeah. Um, well, the trail name is cool because I think a lot of people come out to the trail and they just want to reset or they want to escape from their normal day to day life. And one of the ways you can do that is by getting a trail name. So the trail name is something that whether something happens on the trail or, you, you know, maybe you just eat a lot of like one type of food. And so you get named after the food. It's just something that people associate with you. Um, and that's kind of like your alter ego out there. And so uh, my trail name was Superman, um, and I wish I had a, a little better of a story uh, behind it, but uh, it was really just day two. I was in a shelter. Uh, we were kind of going around introducing all of, our, our, all of, our, uh, all of us uh, together, and um, my real name is Kent, obviously, and so I said my name is Kent, and people, I had the glasses for it, and at the time, my hair was short, and, and I kind of looked like Clark Kent. And someone mentioned that I looked like Superman, and that was literally how it started. And um, I was like, you have the right to either accept it or reject it or kind of try it on for a little bit. So I tried it on for a, a week or two, and, and I realized I really enjoyed it. And so I stuck with Superman as, as my trail name the rest of the way. That's so cool. Um, all right. So some things here i mean kind of kind of getting towards the end here but something i, I would some things i would really like to go into as much detail as we can here is two very specific days in all of this so I, okay i actually actually let me back i want to do i would like to go over three very specific days um the first i would like to really talk about is what was the what was the day that kind of put you over the edge where you decided you were going to do this? Was there a specific event 
And then after that, I'd also like to talk about first day on the trail and then last day on the trail. Um, let's see. So the day that I realized that I was going to make it, um, I think it was, it was a little bit after hot springs. Um, I don't remember the exact day, but I do remember that we were all, um, together as a, as a, a tramway and, um, we were all in a shelter, uh, just kind of hanging out. And we were basically just like talking to each other about like, um, the, the topic of conversation was, was COVID and, and just how we are going to get past it and, and, um, come together as a group. And, and, uh, we, we just, we were in a shelter and, and I realized that these people that I was with, I'd much rather be with these people for the rest of the rest of the time out here than, than go home and have to quarantine. And, um, so we were in a shelter just past the hot springs and, and, um, I don't remember exactly how it happened, but uh, there was just a, a moment where um, we all made the commitment, like when we get to Katahdin, this is what's going to happen. And it was, it was very much like a, a matter of fact, like when we get there, um, you know, what we're going to do and, and how we're going to celebrate. And, and it was so early on in the trail that looking back on it, I mean, it might seem so minuscule, but just the fact that we were all like on board about like getting to Katahdin and we're going to stick together. And, and, um, this is like who we are and, and who we're going to be. And, and it was just, you know, it's, it's kind of a, a weird, I think a weird, uh, moment to realize it. But I, at that point I was like, this is, this is what I want. This is where I want to be. This is what I want to do. And I, at that point I was, there was nothing that was going to stop me to get, to get to the end. And I think once you have that, that kind of, so once you're out there, that's half the battle. But then, then also having that support, net, that that kind of interlocking support network of of people that can either kind of help you fix whatever problems that you might be experiencing, or answer questions that you might have, or vice versa. I think that 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 helps self perpetuate the 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 journey itself. Yeah, and you know, I also had a lot of. I think internal pressure for myself. I mean, I, I told people that I was going to be going out and hiking the Appalachian trail and, and I wasn't going to just go home after a month and say, Oh, I didn't do it. Like, you know, it just didn't work out. Like I, I, I wanted to be, you know, there at the end and, and say that I did the whole thing. And, and, um, you know, so I just, I put a lot of pressure on myself to make sure like whatever obstacles I run into, let's find a way around it and keep going. So March 1st to August 30th, is that, was that open-ended you just kind of all end where i'll end either somewhere at the end of august or beginning of september or was there some some sort of timeline that kept you very structured well it's it's funny because when i first started i actually planned to be done in four months um and not for any reason just the fact that i figured i could do that physically i i, th I thought i went into the trail in pretty good shape and i was i was pretty pretty set on that um, but then it was day two in that shelter where I got named, where I met a lot of my family. And, um, after hiking with them for a couple of days after that, and, and realizing like, these are the people that I would love to, to hang around with and, and really, you know, soak in this experience with, um, I realized that I, it's more important to, to enjoy the journey with these people than to rush ahead and, and kind of finish on my own. And so, um, you know, they were going a little bit slower than I liked to at the beginning. And, and, uh, so it took a little bit of adjusting, uh, myself mentally, uh, in preparing for, for the journey that would be taking place afterwards. And so, 
Um, but I realized like this is way more important than, than a, a goal that I had set in my mind. So there wasn't really an endpoint that I had in mind. Um, it was just sticking with them for as long as I, I could. Um, and then eventually I actually ended up breaking off with them about a month uh, to go and joined up with another group uh, very quickly, like really the second or third day I was away from them. And, um, and then they uh, had, had the end date of August 30th in mind. And so um, a couple of them were from Denmark. And so they actually had to get back because their visa was expiring in the beginning of September. So they had that date in mind for a while. Um, and I just wanted to stick with them. And so I ended up just hiking with them the rest of the way. And um, they had that date in mind already. So I, I just tagged along with them. So, all right. So now let's, let's go back to, to day one. So, uh, so you wake up, so you're from, you're from Colorado, correct? Yep. So you, you actually had to fly out to logistically, what did that look like getting from Colorado to Georgia? Yeah. So I flew out to Atlanta. Um, and thankfully I have a buddy that lives in Atlanta. So I flew out actually on the 29th and, uh, spent a day with him and his fiance and uh, slept uh, at his place. And then um, the next day, they actually took me out to the trailhead. They drove me out and uh, dropped me off uh, at that point. He, he walked actually a couple miles with me on the trail, which is pretty cool. I didn't expect him to, but it was nice to just have that, that you know, that familiar face at the beginning. Yeah, and you woke up that morning, you not nervous or you were nervous? How, how, how were you feeling on, on I that? I was front? very nervous. I, I, was, I was scared. I was nervous. I, I just didn't really know what I was getting myself into. Um, yeah, and so I, I, nerves were at an all-time high at that point. Um, and then I got onto the trail, and uh, it's actually funny. Um, I, I got dropped off. Uh, so he didn't know where he was going, and so we just kind of put in Google Maps um, Appalachian Trail Trailhead, because I didn't know where I was going. I knew Springer Mountain, but I didn't know exactly where. Um, and so he, he drove me to this spot, which was actually past Amicalola, which is the traditional start point, um, a couple miles past it, uh, which is on the approach trail, which is like an eight mile stretch just before you get to Springer Mountain, which is the actual Southern terminus. And so he dropped me off about halfway up the approach trail at this random like side, side you know, uh, just off the road. And uh, we, we didn't know what direction to go in. So we actually just decided we're going to walk this way. And, and we found out very quickly that we were actually walking south. And uh, <laughs> so the first like mile or so, I actually was walking the wrong way. And uh, it just kind of like, you know, in my mind, I was like, well, this is off to a great start. Like, here we go, you know. Um, so, but we got, we got back on the right track and, and figured it out. But it was, it was kind of funny. I, I had a very similar experience. <laughs> leaving uh san francisco where on the bike where i i wasn't really checking my maps all that regularly or checking the gps and then when i did happen to look at google maps and i saw where i was and i saw that the bay was in front of me there like the 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 entire geographical structure of where i was was not what it was supposed to look like and i knew <laughs> i knew that i was i was in for some shit and i i i kept i kept that to myself for a while just because of uh just that, that exact reasoning where there's you know kind of this whole people people could just misconstrue it as a bad omen or something but it's just yeah. kind of getting getting your sea legs underneath you yeah exactly so then all right what about what about the last day what was that like how long did you have to go on the last day was it was it more of a ceremonial kind of one mile thing or 
Um, so yeah, there's a traditional spot where people camp right before Katahdin, which is the last point on the trail, last summit on the trail. Um, and it's about five miles. Uh, you, you basically camp at the base of Katahdin and it's a five mile hike up to the top. Um, so we stayed there. It was called the Birches. There's a little campsite in Baxter State Park. Um, and we actually weren't sure if we were going to summit that day or the next day because uh, we knew that there was a lot of weather coming in and it was going to be pretty crappy and, and rainy and foggy and windy and cold and all that stuff. And so um, we actually talked to some rangers about it and they recommended we, we don't go up the day we went up and they recommended we actually wait an extra day. But to do that, we would have had to hike out of Baxter State Park because you can only stay at the Birches for one night and we'd have to find another place to camp that night and then walk an extra couple miles the next day and it just seemed logistically it'd be a lot more tricky and so we just ended up going for it and uh for the last day we it was only five miles well five miles up and five miles down um but it was one of the worst days i think weather-wise that i had experienced um on the entire trail uh it was just foggy and windy and just so cold and, and wet and um but at the same time, in my mind, I thought to myself, this is really fitting. This is like a, a great way to end a grueling physical experience. I mean, it just felt like it was the culmination of everything that we struggled through. And this is the final challenge. And um, so we, we stuck with it and we got it to the, the top. And unfortunately, because it was so cold and wet and, and windy that we, we only stayed there for about five minutes to enjoy it and got our pictures in and then and then hike down, but um, it was it was so worth it. I'm so glad we did that day, and and again, just shared that experience with the people that I was with, and it was pretty special. So, what was your overall? So, what was the what was the big picture takeaway from you from this whole thing? I mean, obviously, every day is a learning experience, and I think I think you you've probably learned more in in that in that six month stretch than than some people do in you know in six or seven years of college uh, absolutely what so what are your takeaways uh well there's a couple um i would say one of them is uh i've learned for myself uh the, the art of having patience with people um and just kind of and not just with people but just with with life in general um i think uh it, it just sort of calmed me down. And, and when I was going through the trail, I, no matter what I was going through, I realized that it's all gonna be okay in the end. And so um, I sort of realized, I, I tell myself that a lot now is if I'm in a stressful situation or if I'm just like not having a good day or whatever it might be, it's gonna be all right. And I'm gonna get through it. I'm just, you know, put a, put a positive attitude, you know, a, a, put a smile on it and have a positive attitude. and and just, you know, enjoy life for what it is because it really is special and, and enjoy the people around you as well. Because um, one of the things I also realized was people come and go so quickly on the trail and you might see them one day and, and think you're gonna see them the next day in the next campsite, but for whatever reason, they don't make it or they go into town or, or something happens and you never see them again. And you never really have that chance to say goodbye or, or um, your farewells or anything like that. And 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 that was kind of tough sometimes. and and so. I learned to really appreciate people's company and 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 take that for what it is because it really is special. Um, and then I also just learned, uh, you know, I don't need a lot to be happy. I, I really don't. I, I lived out of a backpack for six months and I was the happiest I, I ever been. And um, and so I think uh, 
it changed my mindset about what I want out of life. You know, I don't necessarily want that big house with the, with a nice car and all that stuff. I, I just want people around me that I really care about. Um, I want to, to just be happy with what I have. Um, and, you know, just enjoy nature. I mean, that was like the, the biggest thing for me was just, just being out in nature for all that time and, and just soaking it all in and, and just kind of, I don't know. It was just an amazing experience and, and I really, really enjoyed it. And it was a life-changing experience as well. So then with that in mind, what do you have to say to people that are kind of in the situation you were in where right before you began this journey, where, where it's something that they're kind of thinking about or, you know, what, where, what, where should someone start or what, what can you say to someone to actually even get them to start? Yeah. I mean, like, like I talked about earlier, it, it all starts with just a step-by-step -step progression. So, um, you know, if you, if you think it's something you want to do, look into it, research it, uh, really, you know, figure out, you know, talk to people that have done the trail that for me, that was the biggest thing. Uh, I'd be happy to talk to people as well if they want to reach out, um, and, and share more experiences that I had. Um, but, uh, yeah, talk to people, just get a good feel of, of what to expect. Um, and then don't stress out about it either. I mean, this is supposed to be something that is fun and enjoyable and, um, like I said, life-changing as well. Um, but don't stress out about it. Just, just take it day by day. And, and, um, the first step is getting out there. So, so get to Springer mountain, uh, you know, get your, get a first, you know, the first day in and then see how you feel. And, and I recommend obviously going the whole way, but so for some people, that's not even what they want to do. They just want to get out for a couple of weeks and just enjoy, you know, that, that lifestyle for a little bit. And that's enough for them. And, and they feel like that is, you know, all they need. And so that's cool too. But, um, for me, you know, I, I just, you know, talk to people and just really soak up as much knowledge as you can and it'll go a long way. Where, where could people get in touch with you on, on social media, things like that? Um, yeah, I'm, I'm really just on Instagram, uh, Kent Maiman. Um, so K E N T M A I M A N. Um, and that's probably, probably the easiest way to, to contact me. And I, I saw that you've been up to, uh, even since you've gotten back, so that was, you, you ended August 30th, and we're now in the beginning of October. What, and I've seen in the, in the meantime, you've already done some, some pretty cool stuff back out in, in your home state of Colorado. So what, what hikes have you been up to, and, and what, are, what are you planning for the future? Yeah, so I, uh, I love doing 14ers. Um, it's a life goal of mine to hike every single 14er in Colorado. Um, and those are just peaks over 14,000 feet. Um, and so when I got back, one of the first things I wanted to do uh, is go hike some more. Um, and so uh, my dog that I, I, I take with, all, with me on all my hikes, uh, I wanted to get her out as well, get, her, get, you know, get a couple peaks in uh, this summer. And so I did a couple hikes. I uh, hiked up Mount Ontario, um, Mount of the Holy Cross, uh, Quandary Peak, uh, and then Mount Columbia. So I've done four so far since I've been back. And I'm probably going to do another one actually tomorrow, La Plata Peak. Um, and so um, as far as the future, um, I'm sure it's going to involve some hiking. I, I really want to do the Colorado Trail next, I think. And so I'll probably plan to do that next year. And then um, hopefully uh, the PCT and the CDT are, are close behind it. Maybe the PCT in 2022, and then I'll figure out a time to, this, to do the CT, CDT. But, um, you know, I, this is just the beginning for me. And um, I, I just, you know, this is, like I said, it's just, it's just something I, I, I learned about myself was I love to, I love that lifestyle. And so uh, as much hiking as I possibly can, I'm going to get it in. 
that's awesome. I, I, w I want to end on that note. I, I would like to, you know, even go into some of the gear about some of the 14ers or, or even how our mutual appreciation for taking our dogs with us on some of these, these high alpine hikes. But I think we've, we've reached an appropriate place here to stop. I think it's cool that you've done this. I mean, you've literally undergone the physical manifestation of the hero's journey, which is a remarkable thing to, to have accomplished and, and to accomplish that under a year with so much adversity is, is all the more remarkable. So yeah. I, I applaud you and I, I look forward to seeing some of the, some of the things that you're up to in the, in the not so distant future. Well, thank you so much for having me. This was a lot of fun. I appreciate it. That's a wrap on today's episode. You can find more about the Human Advancement Podcast and Ruthless Performance on ruthlessperformance.com. I specifically recommend that you head to our online education tab where you can learn more about self-improvement, the physiology of performance, practices for enhanced wellness, and more. You can view all podcast episodes directly on our website at podcast.ruthlessperformance.com. I also recommend that you follow us on both Instagram and Twitter with the handle at ruthlessperform. If you have any questions for our monthly Q&A or wanted to learn more about training with Ruthless Performance, including information on our athlete development training, injury prevention and corrective exercise protocols, personal training, or for consults or assessments, you can get in touch with us online at ruthlessperformance.com contact or via email at info at ruthlessperformance.com. The human advancement theme was written by Bernie Wallace-Savage.